0: There's a story that I wonder if you've heard. It's more of a saga than just a single story. And this saga spans multiple generations and is told in several installments or books or tales. Let me give you a little hint of what's involved in this saga. There are men and women and dwarves. There's a dragon and supernatural things. There's a special sword that's broken and then recast for the rightful king. There's a dragon who steals a hoard of gold and is later killed. There's a ring that causes trouble and burden to its wearer and to those nearby. Can anyone tell me the story or saga I'm speaking of? Lord of the Rings and Hobbit, right? Okay, so yes, and if you think that I'm talking about the story of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, then you could go on from the little bits of information that I've just told you, and you could tell me who killed the dragon, for example. You could probably tell me its name and who plays him in The Hobbit, right? Um you could tell me all about the ring of power and Sauron and Aragorn, and you could, you could tell me the whole story. In fact, I saw Greg went through the door, but he could tell me the whole story and the Silmarillion and everything probably verbatim. Now, what you'd be doing if you were to tell me the, the story, if you were to fill in the gaps of just the little bits of information I gave you, is that you would be interpreting dragon, sword, ring, and you'd be, Interpreting those those through the lens that that you know of, so the lens you'd be using is what the books and or the films. Maybe you've read the books and seen the films, maybe one or the other. But what you'd be doing is taking that canon of information you have, and you'd be telling me the rest of the story based on those little uh, descriptive facts that I that I mentioned. And if you did that, you would be wrong. The story I was talking about is believed to be written in the 13th century, some parts which date back to the 6th century. That's 14, uh, 7 to 14 centuries before Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. I'm referring, of course, to the Saga of the Volsungs, which is a Norse myth that was well known by C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. R. Tolkien and the group known as the Inklings. In fact, the part in Voyage of the John Trader, which I know many of you is your favorite book, where Eustace becomes a dragon because of his greed and has to be cut out of his own skin, that's in Saga of the Volsungs, in a little different version. These writers were heavily influenced by Norse mythology, but their stories were distinctly different than the Norse myths. We wouldn't do the Saga of the Volsungs justice by reading them through the interpretive lens of the Lord of the Rings. We would be doing an injustice to those stories because we'd be taking a later work, centuries later work, and reading it into these Norse myths. My point is, we use our lenses to interpret the world we live in. In the books we read, in the films we watch, in the music we hear, it's impossible for you and I not to look through A lens when we interpret our world we look through the lenses that we have of our knowledge or lack thereof through our experiences or lack thereof and through our culture and our language we have those lenses we have to look through them just like you have glasses on all the time and we need to be aware of the lenses through which we see when we read the Bible so that we're careful to let the Bible say what the Bible says without imposing on the Bible the things that we think we see. Now, there are few chapters in the Bible more misinterpreted than Matthew chapter 24, and its parallel passages in Mark 13 and Luke 21. But our road through the resurrection series takes us right through Matthew chapter 24, and rather than trying to avoid a hard topic— let's try and look at this passage with fresh eyes, taking our lenses off that we might come to the passage with and, um, and look at it fresh tonight. Now, here's the deal. You can't just look at part of chapter 24. Like, it goes together. And so what I'm going to do is read a whole bunch of it. And here's what I would encourage you to do. One thing, by standing with me in just a minute, uh, it'll help kind of get the blood going and maybe help you be more alert. But throughout this message, what I encourage you to do is maybe doodle on your notes if you have your bulletin, or do something tactile, draw a picture about what you think I'm saying, what you think you're hearing, Um, write down notes if you want to, uh, because this is going to cover a lot of ground. I can't, simply can't go verse by verse unless we had about three or four or five hours. I'm more than willing to follow up later on. In fact, I'd love to, because I've done a lot more research than I could possibly communicate right now. But what I'm saying is buckle your seatbelts we're about ready to get going on uh, on a pretty intense road. So stand with me, please. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week, which is right in the beginning of Matthew chapter 24. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came to the point uh, or came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, and will mislead many. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever's on the housetop must not go down to get the things out of his house. Whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in winter or in a Sabbath. for then there will be great tribulation. Such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor will ever "...unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, the elect. Behold, I've told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Or, Behold, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe them." For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is there, the eagles will gather, or the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man Coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Now, learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer's near. So you too, when you see these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Uh, For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving to marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. There will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know which day day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming he would have been on alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Lord, open your word to us. This mysterious, metaphor-packed, dirty lens reading through, Lord, help us to hear what you have to say to us. By your grace, Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds. Amen. You may be seated. You'll notice if you're type A or OCD that he didn't finish the chapter. I I didn't get into that last parable because a parable takes a lot of unpacking. It basically reinforces the stuff that came right before it. So forgive me. Uh, I did it on purpose. All right. So remember, you're free to doodle. Um. In fact, it's some, it, it helps learning, uh, especially in a long passage like this. All right. So I opened this message before I even read the scripture with an introduction on reading things through a lens. Now, most people I talk with feel like when, when we talk about Matthew 24, this type of passage, it evokes images of rapture and the end of the world. In fact, that is a common reading in American evangelicalism in the past hundred years, and I specify American evangelicalism in the past hundred years because that's the unique niche where people look at this passage and think end of the world and rapture. It's common in American evangelicalism in the modern era primarily because of the belief known as dispensationalism, a view made popular by the books and films left behind. When we read Matthew 24 through this lens, we assume we know already what this passage is about. In fact, the people who translated some of our translations in English think they know what it's about, too. And you'll see some of those headings on there, like the uh, arrival or Christ's return or whatever it is. Those things aren't actually in the Greek Bible. They're just put there by interpreters. When we read Matthew 24 through this lens, we assume we know what it's about. We think it's a warning about how the world will end when Jesus returns in final judgment... Reading through this left-behind lens, the language of end of days, earthquakes, stars falling, and people being taken while others are left behind, is clearly talking about exactly how things will happen when Jesus returns in some mysterious day. And because of this view, many have become preoccupied with looking for signs and trying to interpret or guess or predict when the end of the world will come. Which is ironic because that's exactly, if anything, in this passage, is what Jesus says not to do. He says, No one knows. I don't even know. Only the Father knows. Uh, you should, just for fun, look up the website rapturemeter.com. There's a real site. And people like rank like, Oh, ISIS is doing something new. The rapture meter is growing. And it actually, we think we're closer to this end of the days. But reading Matthew 24 or any other passage of the Bible through the lens of a poorly written and even more poorly thought out fictional book about the Bible is bad form. I mean it's a poor interpretive lens. Even if you secretly like that book, that's fine. But to read the Bible through the lens of a of a modern book like that, a fictional book is not a good interpret I'm just basic exegetical theory. Like that's not a good way to read it. So how do we approach this text? And, of course, you know I'm going to say context, right? Um, first, we recognize before our context that we have an opinion. Every one of us, whether we learned this as a child, whether we read Left Behind, whether, whatever background we're coming to, we all come to this text loaded. Like, we have lenses. We read this and we think of all the sermons we've heard before, of all the people we've heard, of all the stuff our parents told us, right? And there's no shame in that. What we have to do is say, I have this lens. I know when I approach the text, that I've got a preloaded opinion. Second thing we have to do then, every one of us, is submit our opinions to the text. That's good Bible reading. Even in your quiet time at home, whatever passage you're reading, submit your preconceived notions to the text. We're going to try and interpret this passage in context of Matthew's gospel, first of all. Second of all, we interpret it through the rest of Scripture, And we're also going to look at what we know today about the cultural and historical setting of the time when the story was written, right? Not the time of left-behind books being written. Okay, so what's the setting? Let's go back a little bit. We've been walking through this for a few weeks now. Matthew 21 and 22, Jesus comes into Jerusalem where his authority is challenged by the Jewish religious leaders. He actually goes into the temple. Um, Some people say, Hosanna, the king has come. But the people... The religious leaders who ought to have been pointing the Jews toward the Messiah actually said, no, we think he's a false Messiah. And they said, don't believe in him. Chapter 23, Jesus then warns his disciples not to be like the religious leaders who are so interested in their social standing and fine clothes and places of honor that they fail to recognize God's Messiah standing in front of them. He says, don't be like them. At the end of Matthew chapter 23, and it might help you to have your Bible open. We're going to go through a lot of stuff. So at the end of 23, Jesus declares that the temple is abandoned. He leaves the temple. He says, it's desolate. i leave this house to you desolate. And chapter 24, he continues seamlessly with Jesus then leaving the temple. And it's important that we see that chapter 24 isn't this isolated story. It's, it's intimately connected with 23 and as he leaves, his disciples make notice of the buildings at the temple. Mark's version records them saying, behold, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. The disciples are obviously impressed with the temple, and they have every right to be. You have to appreciate, I mean, we have amazing buildings. It seems like every other year, Dubai, or somebody's building the tallest tower in the world, and we have just magnificent architecture, the things we can do with modern engineering, and steel, and all of this kind of stuff, but the temple in this time was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Ian's going to throw a picture up there of the temple, just to kind of grasp its size. King Herod started rebuilding the temple in 19 B.C. It didn't get completed until 63, 64 A.D., and during that time, he more than doubled the size of the temple. So if you look at just the outer walls, that would include, um, uh, it was 400 yards by 500 yards. So think, you know, a football field is 100 yards by, what, 50 yards? Think how many football fields could fit in that. Um, let's go to another shot there. So this is a, obviously a reproduction of what the temple would have looked like, but just the massive walls and how you could see it from a distance. In fact, one stone was excavated in the last 15 years that is... 45 feet long this is one single cut stone 45 feet long seven feet high and it's estimated still partly in the ground so they estimate its weight at between 420 and 600 tons the most interesting thing about this one stone is it's not a foundation stone it's a second tier stone it's just amazing. Josephus writes that you could see it. See, the temple was overlaid with gold and white marble, and he writes that you could see it shimmering for a 100 miles in every direction. This was an absolutely stunning building. And Ian, show us the next picture there. This may be a depiction of the inside, just this magnificence uh, of one of the courts. And of course, the temple uh, was not just massive, but it was and more than it being a magnificent piece of architecture, it was a, 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 the symbol of Israel's religion and permanence in the land. It was uh, a public, or a common teaching, not a biblical teaching, but a common rhetorical teaching in, in the synagogue during this time, that the temple was indestructible. It could never be broken. Right? Symbol of national pride. It was a symbol of stability and permanence, and that is precisely why Jesus' words are so shocking. Do you see all these things? Ian, go back to the last one. Do you see this bastion of religious and national significance? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Thank you, Ian. Jesus was not the first to say something like this, of course. Hundreds of years before him, the prophets Jeremiah and Micah both predicted the fall of the temple. Why? Because of lack of compassion and justice by the Israelite people. Jesus is likely making this statement about the temple falling and being destroyed uh, between 32 and 33 AD. The language for one stone not uh, being left upon another was a way of saying total destruction, Uh, and that's precisely what happened to that temple in the year 70 A.D. Titus came, and his armies crushed it and burned it and desecrated it. The people of God had put their hopes in the idea that God should rescue them in a particular way. They put their hopes in national pride and in their religious institutions, and when God himself, showed up in the flesh in the person of jesus they not only missed it i mean it's one thing to like oh i didn't realize you were (laughs) you were really yahweh i didn't realize you were really the messiah but they actually brought charges against jesus and saw him crucified on a roman cross that's ultimate rejection this brings up a major lens through which we need to read this whole chapter Because after Jesus says this, the disciples ask two questions, right? Throughout the rest of Matthew chapter 24, there are no more questions, right? Disciples ask two questions. In fact, Jesus is the only voice except for the one part where the narrator says, let the reader understand. We'll get there. But other than that, there's two questions by the disciples, and then the rest is all Jesus. There's not a change in topic. There's not another question he's answering. That tells me from an interpretive lens that Jesus, what he says in Matthew 24, is answering the questions that the disciples ask right at the beginning of the chapter. So we better understand these questions before we move any further, right? That's our context. Okay, so here we go. We're going to take them one at a time. First, When will these things happen? Easy enough. What things? The destruction of that temple. And that's what Jesus is talking about, okay? So when will these things happen? Destruction of the temple. Second, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That's a two-parter, okay? Second question poses a little bit of difficulty, especially if we're used to reading this passage and thinking it's mostly about the end of the world. But let's try and set that lens aside for now and read that through the lens of this text, Tackling it in two sections. What will be the sign of your coming? Interesting. Now, coming is an English translation for a Greek word, of course, parousia or parousia. Parousia had many meanings, such as appearance, arrival, presence, advent, is one of the, the definitions. Those are the denotative meanings. English teachers, you're like, oh, you use denotative. That's the dictionary meaning. Denotative means dictionary. You look up parousia in the Greek, and it's going to be one of those things, presence, coming, arrival, all right? But there's also connotative meaning. So like um, when I say the word dough, the the denotative meaning is the stuff you cook with. The connotative meaning is money, right? Sometimes we use that as slang. Nobody uses that anymore. But anyway, that's all I could think of. But the point is that there's a connotative meaning that was common for parousia in the first century, and here's what it is. Uh, uh, it was uh, known in the first century Roman world that parousia was the term used when a new king was coming, right? When a king was coronated, uh, so you've heard me say in the past that euangelion is the Greek word for good news or gospel, and that is the news that a new king has been crowned, a new king has been put on the throne, a new king is now ruler over your land, okay? The parousia is the actual arrival of that king or the coming of that king, Okay, so evangelion good news, gospel, that's the message of the king. Parousia, or coming, is the actual arrival of the king. The disciples then want to know, when are you going to make yourself known? Okay, you've been going around with us for a few years. People have rejected you. We believe in you. We believe you're the rightful king. When are you going to have your parousia? When are you going to make yourself known to the world as the king we believe you are? What will be the sign of your enthronement? And this leads us naturally to the second part, the end of the age. Again, through our left behind lens, we read the end of the age as the end of the world. Let's take those left behind glasses and put them over here for a minute. I'm not saying you can't read it through that, but let's just humor me take those off for a minute. The end of the age was referring to the expected day when God would come, Perseus, and become king. The expected day when he would judge his enemies and set up his rule on earth. Another way of saying the end of the age is the beginning of the new age. Have you ever thought about that? the end of the age in hebrew thought isn't the end of the world it's the beginning of a new age now check this out here's just this the mind-blowing thing i love i love these connotations so the prophet ezekiel in ezekiel chapters 10 and 11 describes the glory of the lord leaving the temple i mean that's that's big that's judgment because people believe the presence of the lord if you were going to be close to god anywhere it was going to be in the temple The Spirit of God leaves the temple in judgment because people rejected his leadership and they were abusing the poor and they were abusing the powerless. And do you know where the Spirit takes Ezekiel to explain what's going on? To a mountain, to the east of the temple, which is the Mount of Olives. Okay, now check this out. The Mount of Olives is exactly where Jesus goes and takes Matthew and the disciples when he leaves the temple in the beginning of this chapter, he goes to the Mount of Olives and then he has this explanation of what's going on. This is literally God leaving the temple. Jesus speaks these words because... He's inaugurating the beginning of a new age. The old age of the temple as the place where you had to go to meet God is over. The old age of Torah as the way the only way to follow God is over. A new age has become uh, has begun in Jesus. That's the end of the old age, the beginning of the new age, which is you come to the Father through me. I am the new temple. And we've heard him say all of this previously in Matthew's gospel. Jesus speaks these words around the mid-30s A.D. Uh, by 33 A.D., Jesus has been crucified. The temple falls in 70 A.D. So there's a 40-year gap between the time Jesus is crucified, roughly 40 years, 37, right? and the time that the, 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 the temple falls. All right? That's why Jesus warns his disciples that in that span, many people are going to rise up and they're going to claim to be messianic figures. And Jesus warns them, don't follow these imposters. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines. And of course, history is very clear, and I'm talking about non-biblical history, so it's not just like a Christian thing. This is Josephus, this is uh, other Roman historians, tell us that between Jesus' crucifixion and the fall of the temple in 70 AD, um, there were earthquakes, there were famines. In fact, uh, after easter we're going to go back to our series in 1st corinthians there's a part in 1st corinthians that's kind of confusing where paul tells people maybe you should think twice about getting married many scholars believe it's because that famine was so pa- bad in that time period that he's saying you know when you become married your allegiance then becomes to your spouse and to your children and this may not be a good time to take on that type of commitment during this famine so there's a, a historical major famine huge during this time period it's difficult um, and we're going to get we're going to get to that in a few months from now jesus goes on to warn the disciples that they're going to face tribulation and death and hatred by others because of his name now have you ever read the book of acts well, i mean almost all the apostles end up dying either in acts or after acts uh, they go before uh, the trial before pagan courts they're persecuted by uh, by the jewish leaders by the pagan leaders Um, People martyred. People going to the arenas in the first couple centuries. I mean, this this is horrible times. But especially in the in the book of Acts, there even before the fall of the temple, this is a a very difficult time. And the Gospels preached to the whole world according to ancient language and geography. In fact, Paul's last mission is to get to Spain, the place he truly believed the edge of the known world. He did all of this well before the temple fell in 70 AD. So according to their geography and cosmology and their language, the gospel went out to the... I mean, the whole world is the Roman Empire. Then Jesus speaks of the abomination of desolation, which is language from the book of Daniel. Daniel had to do with the prophecy of someone coming in and desecrating the temple. This prophecy was originally fulfilled uh, by Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Greek king, between the years 215 B.C. and 164 B.C. He's notorious for forcing Jews to eat pork uh, upon pain of death. Many Jews were martyred. In fact, many famous Jewish martyr stories come out of this time period where people refused to eat pork out of obedience to the Torah, and, uh, and they were put to death. Antiochus Epiphany is uh, is possibly most famous for the fact that he then brought a pig and slaughtered it in the holy place of the temple, thus desecrating it, an abomination of desolation. Now, here's the interesting thing. Jesus is using this language of abomination of desolation, and he's recycling it. The narrator adds, let the reader understand. Matthew's audience was likely reading this gospel for the first time after the temple had already fallen. And what set all of this in motion? What caused Rome to march on Jerusalem and smash that city and destroy the temple? It was a Jewish rebel leader who assassinated Romans in the temple of the living God, took human blood in the holy place of the temple, believing it was the will of God. And after he killed these Romans in the holy temple, he cried out to God, said, I've started it God, now come and rescue us. We're ready for the revolution. He was mistaken to think that taking the blood, even pagan blood, was not also taking the blood of an image bearer of the living God. He was mistaken in thinking that God would sanction these assassinations. And what Jesus is saying is that that is the abomination. Thinking that you are so above the law that your national Nationalistic ideals and goals are the same as what God has for his world. And it was that act that then brought the wrath of Rome on Jerusalem and on the temple. The struggle started in 66 AD. History tells us it was the most horrible thing that had ever occurred. More Jews were killed by each other than by the Romans. They went up top to Masada. Uh, a stone a natural fortress where there was a, a, a freshwater spring where they could hold out for a long time the romans just waited and when their food ran out the historians tell us that they ate each other and they ate their children and right before the romans broke through the the remained the remainder of the jews jumped off the side of that hill absolute hell on earth this happened between 66 and 7 you know it's a so Jesus warns the disciples when this goes down flee to the mountains run for your life don't look back Jerusalem is being judged just like Lot and his family fled Sodom and Gomorrah and they weren't to look back now God's people were to do the same thing You remember the teaching back earlier in this gospel where Jesus says to Jewish cities who had rejected him, hey, it's going to be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you in the day of judgment. Jesus starts to describe the rise of more false messiahs. He speaks of lightning and the darkening of the sun and the moon. The powers of heaven and earth will be shaken. That is Typical, typical prophetic language for judgment on a city. We see this over and over again. In fact, uh, uh, Ryan and Zoe read passages from that. that. That passage that Ryan read from Isaiah about, um, you know, the stars falling and the sun being darkened and the moon, that, that's about judgment in Babylon. It's not about the end of the world. That actually happened. Here's just one more example. Ezekiel 32, 7 through 8. And when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and moon. It will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you and will set darkness to your land, declares the Lord God. Clearly talking in that context in Ezekiel about a historic event uh, hundreds of years before Jesus is even speaking here. This type of language can also be found in Isaiah 13:10, 24, 23, 34:4 and Joel chapter 2 among many many others. It's the type of language used for destruction, not literal cosmic events, not stars falling from the sky. I mean, just think about if you know anything about astrology, could a star really fall on earth <laughs> like just burn us up? Um, what I'm saying is that this is this cosmic doom language is well attested in use by the prophets to describe real events in history and in the context of our passage they refer to the fall of jerusalem and the temple then they will see the son of man coming on a cloud with great power and glory this next passage has led many astray Uh, people have envisioned this being like a cloud like a primitive spaceship that brings jesus down um, for the second coming or whatever Um, but this statement is right out of daniel chapter 7 about the Son of Man. In that vision that Daniel is having by God, Israel has been oppressed over time by four different beasts representing four different nations, and it would appear that the people of God have been completely crushed by their enemies. And then there's this scene of vindication, where one like a Son of Man who represents all the Israelites comes on a cloud before the Ancient of Days. Now here's the interesting thing. In that Vision that Jesus is now drawing on in that vision in Daniel. Where is Daniel? He's up in heaven with the Ancient of Days. So, where's the Son of Man coming? He's not coming from heaven to earth on a cloud, he's coming from earth to heaven on a cloud. You see the perspective. So we've always envisioned this as, oh, the Son of Man's gonna come out of the sky someday when he returns. What Jesus is talking about is the Son of Man coming up to the Ancient of Days, up to the Father. And there's this mysterious throne next to the Father. This really bothered monotheists. We're monotheists too, but even before conception of the Trinity, like Jewish teachers had a real problem with this. Like why would the Ancient of Days have a throne right next to him? Like that's sharing power. The Son of Man must be somebody really special. And the son of man figure has always been a mystery. But when Jesus started his ministry on earth, how did he start referring to himself? Son of man. Son of man. He was rejected by the religious establishment, crucified by the beast of Rome. And in Acts chapter 1, we read, he was lifted up, up, he was lifted up while they were looking on and what happened? A cloud received him in their sight done done jesus is fulfilling daniel 7 he is going up to heaven he's receiving a kingdom from god he's being vindicated over his enemies rome thought they had crushed jesus the religious leaders thought they had rid themselves of a rival leader but jesus the son of man is vindicated before god he receives a kingdom and he draws people to himself a new people of God, made up of everyone who would put their faith in him. This does not mean the time of the Jews is over. Do not hear that in this passage at all. This just means the door's now open to everybody else. Amen. Alright? So everyone who places their faith in Jesus, no matter what your ethnicity or your gender, it doesn't matter. You're <laughs> it's good news. Very good news. Now, when is this gonna happen? Well, it says it's going to happen within a generation of Jesus speaking. Within that time, that generation, well, nobody knows. Like, is it going to be tomorrow? Is it going to be in 20 years? Is it going to be in 40 years? Well, we don't know. Only the Father knows. But it's going to happen quickly and unexpectedly. People are going to go about their business just like in the days of Noah. Noah and his family got in an ark and lived, and everybody else was left behind. The others were swept away. Jesus says that The same will be true when the judgment comes. Some will be taken or killed or taken as spoils of war. Some will be left behind. Did you catch that? Noah and his family were rescued, right, from the flood? They were left behind. Did you catch that? The, The other people were swept away. And Jesus is saying the same is true it's going to be just like that, that when this destruction comes, these raiding armies come, some are going to be taken. You know what happens? I mean, you've seen old war movies, or I don't know if you've seen Game of Thrones, these the Dothraki coming in with their horses, and they just, they just ride through a town, and they burn everything, and they take women, and they kill guys, or they take able-bodied teenagers for slaves, and the survivors are left behind with maybe one less spouse, or no children, and their house is burning, but they're left behind. Like, they make it. You want to be left behind. Like, that's where the books just blow my mind. Like, you don't want to be taken, and uh, you see, that's the point of Jesus's thing here. You want to be left behind. That's why my sermon title is Left Behind, I Hope. Why does this matter to us? Okay, you've endured quite a bit of just me talking about scripture we had we had to do that to get here why does this matter first it means that jesus is who he said he was it means he's the son of god verse 34 says this generation will not pass away until all these things take place this has caused um, bertrand russell famous philosopher inventor to discredit christianity because of dispensationalist thinking. He says, I don't think Jesus knew what was going to happen. He says it happened in one generation. And if you think this is the end of the world, it obviously didn't happen in one generation. This caused um, the, the German modernist interpreters to lose their orthodoxy because they think that Jesus really didn't know what was going on. But he does know what he's going on. He predicted his rejection He predicted the judgment of those who rejected him. He predicted his vindication. And now he's seated at God's right hand. He has been dwelling in you, his church, for over 2,000 years. Great empires like Rome and Greece and the Turk. I mean, all all of these, the British (laughs) Empire, America's coming next. I mean, all of these great nations and empires rise and fall, but the church still goes on. Jesus is still reigning, he's still vindicated over all of this. So on the surface, just if we take this passage in its immediate context, how did its first readers understand it? There's good news. The things that Jesus spoke of came to pass in the historical events leading to the fall of the temple. Jesus has taken the place of the temple. He allows access to all nations, ethnicities. Everybody can come to the Father through him. Rejoice, right? That would be Good enough, but as you know, I've got more. Here it comes. As is often the case with biblical prophecy, there are multiple layers to this meaning. For example, we're talking about this in our small group on Wednesday, um, in um, in Isaiah seven and nine. We often read those passages in Advent. You know, talks about uh, a wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Th- this person who's going to come, and uh, one like Emmanuel is going to come, God with us, from Isaiah seven. And we automatically, as Christians, think. He's talking about Jesus there, and when Jesus is born, it fulfills that prophecy. You're right, but let me tell you something. Nobody, when Isaiah himself didn't know that there was some dude named Jesus going to be born centuries and centuries later, those prophecies, as we've gone through before as a church, were about human leaders that Jesus, that God rose up to rescue Israel when they were in bondage. Cyrus, for example came and was born and had all these mighty titles. I mean, kings, we we can't really imagine this from our modern-day presidents because we're in a democracy, but kings back then, Egyptian kings, Babylonian kings, used to have these long, I am mighty God, I am the everlasting one. I mean, so these were first fulfilled by human people, but then when Jesus comes, we realize, oh my goodness, those first fulfillments were just a shadow of what really is happening, and I think that's exactly what's going on here. Yes, there was immediate judgment for those who rejected Jesus. Yes, the temple fell. Yes, all of that is fulfilling what Jesus says. Yes, in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus was resurrected, he went up on a cloud to heaven and seated on the right hand of the Father. Right now, by the way, that's where he is. That's why ascension is so important. We'll celebrate that in May, but there's more to this. In Matthew 26, when Jesus dies on the cross, what happens? earthquakes, sun darkened in the middle of the day for hours, signs and wonders like the temple curtain being torn from top to bottom, dudes getting out of the grave, walking around. I know we just read over that. I think I preached on it a couple years ago. That's a weird one, but all of these amazing kind of apocalyptic things happen. That's interesting. See, I think Jesus here in Matthew 24 is talking about two temples, the fall of two temples. The one, of course, is the stone shell, the temple that we looked at on the screen, crumbled down under Titus' reign in 70 A.D. The other temple, though, that was crushed is Jesus, who said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it again, right? So that's another meaning, and I think there's a third layer, and it does have to do with the ends of the end of the age, all right? The end of the age of Torah and the end of the age of temple came with the arrival of Jesus and the fall of the Jerusalem temple. This event that we're talking about was the beginning of the end of the age. Right now, we're in the age of the church, the new temple of God. The presence of God fills his people and empowers us for mission, amen? Okay. And this age, this last age that we live in, is still awaiting for final judgment. That's the day when Jesus is going to bring his kingdom in full. The day when heaven will come to earth, the day that evil will be destroyed and death itself will die, and on that day, those who are found in Christ to be faithful in him will be given resurrection bodies and will live in new creation forever. That's the hope of Christ in us. And these final words of Jesus ask the question, now here's the punchline in the parable we didn't get to, but basically, are you ready? Here's what Jesus does not say. Waste your time trying to predict when the end of the world will be. He says, nobody knows. Heck, I don't even know. Only the Father knows. So be ready. Do you know it's much easier to get the newspaper out and say, oh, all this stuff's happening around the world Jesus must be ready. It's so much easier to have an analyst perspective on the world than a participatory perspective on the world. Jesus does not say try and predict when all this is going to happen. He says be ready, be engaged, be about my work. Get your head out of the future, live in the now. Don't be like those who incur judgment on themselves. Believe in me now, trust me. In me now, change your ways now. In fact, if you express your desire to be a new creation in me, I will come and make my home in your heart. I will give you power from on high to change you from the inside out. Brothers and sisters, I want more of that Christ life in me. I think this passage points to a whole lot. And what I want to leave us with is the fact that he says, be ready, be transformed, and I'm here to help you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you that you are trustworthy, that your word is trustworthy. Lord, we will confess from our perspective, um, through the lenses through which we uh, grew, grew up with, and just from being modern people, Your word is weird sometimes. But thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, when you meet us in study and when you meet us in the moment of submitting ourselves to your word, you show yourself to be faithful and just and trustworthy. I so thank you for the future uh, we have in you and for the present that we have in you through the power of your spirit. Help us to live ready help us holy spirit to die to our selfishness and to the things that just don't matter and help us to be about the things that do matter lord we are asking for a miracle because we know when we say those words help us to be about the things that matter to you we are inherently going to have to die to the things that we think are so important to us lord show us in the surgery that you do in our hearts how some of our passions are simply misplaced, how we don't have to give up the good things of the creation that you've placed us in. Altogether, we have to change our perspective on them. We have to put them in proper order and submission under you, Lord. So help us not to be dour and to continue to be people with our heads down saying no to everything. Help us to embrace all of your good creation and to put it in moderation and to submit ourselves to you and to be full of joy and thanksgiving. Thank you that you are the God of life and that you died to rescue us from judgment. Amen.